1: is a calling I am honored and eager to answer.
0: So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello, and welcome to Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, November 2nd, and this is episode 94. My name is Allison Gill, and I am here, as always, with my very good friend and real-life lawyer, Andrew Torres. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Allison, how are you doing? Um, woo, you know, <laughs> it's always a good start. Right?
1: <laughs> the answer to that question is woo.
0: Every Monday morning, you know, when we, when we flip the, when we hit the record button, it's, there's something breaking that we have to rewrite the entire script. So yeah, we did that this morning. Uh, but before we get into, cause what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about The Department of Justice now bringing charges against the the, person who attempted to assassinate the Speaker of the House. And uh, we're going to talk about Eastman because we need a laugh today.
1: Oh, gosh.
0: (laughs) Um, But before we do that, uh, I want to thank, we have a whole grip of new patrons, and I think it's because we're going to start putting out that bonus episode. Uh, which I'm really, really excited about. So who, who do we have that has signed up with us in this past week? Yeah, so a big thank
1: you to Tebavi, Robert Brown, Tiffany Weber, Janet Beebe, Andy, Random Nonsense with a Smidge of Tomfoolery, that's a fantastic name, Sherry, <laughs> in <Tenansin> Ramen, <laughs> Blacklock and Affinial, Sherry L. Burke, Jeffrey Waldmiller, Sally Kirk, Jill Deutsch, Mystery T, Brian Jevon Swivel, Prescott Nichols. Kurt Girdle's story is incomplete. <laughs> Heather, I love, we love math geekery
0: here. Yeah, any, any Gödel-Escher-Bach reference we can yeah. throw in to the mix always pleases me.
1: There you go. Heather Greer-Klein. Sean Young. I really hope it's that Sean Young. Right? Oh, my God. Yeah, Wow. Uh, Kristen of Colorado and Sarah Ryan, and that is not all. Who else do we have?
0: No, we also have Charles Case, Susan, Bob Hodges, Bonnie Raymond, Ryan Rutley, Janice Ness, Pinky Panatiera, awesome Mike Crandall, Lauren Leslie, Cheryl Debona, Chris hartzell Richard Scott, Cindy Burns, Stephanie Barrett, Jack Lawrence, Lisa S. Olaf, of course, yeah. let it snow. <laughs> Nick, demand a UK general election and stop the madness now. Elijah Miller, Sun Winks, and Democracy Requires Good Faith Actors to Work. It's More Enjoyable with OA Space Bean Synergy.
1: There you go. Ooh. <laughs> that is that is a listener of all three shows. Absolutely.
0: Amazing. Thank you all so much. I'm really excited to start putting out this bonus content for patrons, so we appreciate you. Oh, And if you want to sign up, by the way, it's, you know, you just, what is it? Uh, Patreon.com slash aisle45pod, 45 pod
1: and uh, I think we might put out that first one, you know, in a couple of days. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so listen up. And if you want to get in right, uh, uh, the the buck level is keeps the show going. It's two bucks is where you get the, the second show. And, um, you know, it's 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 our way of uh, giving back to those who support us. So uh, I am I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yes, you have earned it. Um, all <laughs> right. So uh, first of all, this just dropped. And I know by the time this episode comes out Wednesday, it's going to be old news. But there have been a lot of, you know, ever since Elon took over Twitter and uh, with the attack, (sighs) attempted assassination of the Speaker of the House, uh, which ended in a default, I guess, attack on, on her husband, Paul Pelosi. There have been conspiracy theories, included conspiracy theories floated by Elon Musk himself. That, uh, I mean, they're awful, anti-LGBTQ+, conspiracy theories, just absolutely horrible. Ted Cruz, uh, Don Jr., they're retweeting pictures of uh, hammers and underwear, Halloween costumes. It's absolutely fucking disgusting. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem here is, we, you know, a lot of people are leaving Twitter and we, we just, these lies, you know, have their, get, you know, get around the world before the truth puts their, she puts its shoes on, is kind of what's been happening on, on social media and this new affidavit in support uh, for arrest, by, si- signed by a law enforcement officer, right, debunks it all.
1: Yeah, I, I have fortunately stayed way away from whatever the gross conspiracy theories are i would point out that you know mitch mcconnell issued a statement that said he was horrified and disgusted by the uh, hammer assault that hospitalized paul pelosi 82 uh yeah uh, you know, mike pence no friend of the show called the assault an outrage so you know i mean we were really talking about the furthest of the fringe uh and and it's it's gross to give that airtime, right like that 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 should not be the case. But uh, this two count indictment uh, alleges that the uh, defendant uh, violated 18 U.S.C. 115 A1A and 115 B and 18 U.S.C. 1201 D. It is backed up by uh, an affidavit from a special agent of the FBI. Uh, you're going to get into some of the facts of that. I want to talk very briefly about this because these are incredibly serious criminal charges. Let's start with 18 USC 1201. This is the federal kidnapping statute. Uh, this carries the federal death penalty with it. Okay, uh, not as particularly applied in this case, but uh, 1201A. Right, if you actually unlawfully kidnap. Uh, any person, and then they are transported in interstate commerce, uh, shall be punished by imprisonment for any term of years or for life. And if the death of any person results shall be punished by death or life imprisonment. So you were talking about a, a capital crime here in certain cases. Now, that did not get carried out. So subsection D: Whoever attempts to violate subsection A shall be punished by imprisonment for not more than twenty years. So you mm. have attempted kidnapping. Is that twelve oh one charge?
0: Is there a mandatory minimum on that? There is not. Okay, and and this is immediately debunks something that I've gotten a lot of pushback on by saying this was an attempt. To, this was an assassination attempt on Nancy Pelosi. No, she wasn't there. Doesn't count. Now, now that when we get into the details, it, it will be easy to prove that he wanted to kidnap and injure her. Um, but I think it would be a, a, a stretch to say he wanted to kill her. Not that he wouldn't if he didn't ever, you know, there. Uh, but based on what he has told the police, it is at the at the minimum a, a kidnap and injure situation.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's that's how. Uh, 1201d gets uh, invoked. 115 is a more specific crime. That is influencing, impeding, or retaliating against a federal official by threatening or injuring a family member. Kind of sad that we have to have this as a law. Uh, but, uh, but here's how that breaks down. This is the A1A. Uh, whoever assaults, kidnaps, murders, or attempts or conspires to kidnap or murder or threatens to assault, kidnap or murder a member of the immediate family of a United States official. Right. That is uh, the end of that particular of the elements of, of that crime. Right. So appears to be straightforwardly applicable here to somebody who assaulted the immediate family member to to with the spouse of a United States official, Nancy Pelosi. And then subsection B says the punishment for an assault in violation of this section is, uh, and it escalates, right? So a fine, right? If the assault consists of a simple assault, a term of imprisonment for not more than one year, right? That is, uh, as as we know, a simple assault is just uh, aggressively, that's not even a battery, right? Like you can mm-hmm. m- make someone afraid of you uh, and that will invoke the one year. Then, if the assault involved physical contact with the victim of that assault or the intent to commit another felony, term of imprisonment for not more than 10 years, okay? Then, subsection three, if the assault resulted in bodily injury, a term of imprisonment for not more than 20 years, or, and finally you get to the maximum modifier, which clearly applies here, if the assault resulted in serious bodily injury, right? And then, as that term is defined in section 1365, trust me, hammer to the skull counts as Mm. serious bodily injury, or a dangerous weapon was used during and in relation to the offense. And by the way, hammer counts as a dangerous weapon, well established in in criminal case law, a term of imprisonment for not more than 30 years. Wow. So, yeah.
0: So they aren't going with attempted murder here. I think that's the local cops are doing that, right? Yeah,
1: because there is no federal murder statute. Right. Remember that you can't have kind of catch all criminal offenses that are criminalized at the federal level. There has to be some connection to a power of Congress. Right. So the kidnapping uh, is uh, in connection with interstate commerce. Right. Right. And the retaliating against a federal official is in connection with it, you know, being in connection with a federal official. So that's how you get around sort of the general jurisdictional problems. Uh, There is nothing to stop uh, local police uh, and local law enforcement from investigating on uh, various state law grounds and from trying uh, this defendant. I'm not going to name him right now, but uh, separately. And uh, and that could happen, right? That there's no there are no double jeopardy considerations, even with it uh, arising out of the same common nucleus of operative facts, because two different sovereigns charging you with two different sets of offenses with two different levels of proof. Right. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, very serious, immediate action by the DOJ. And again, not 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 that I mean, you know, sometimes we commend uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is one of those if there had not been serious action immediately, you know, what the hell's going on here? But, you know, it's another notch in the like Merrick Garland is not a sleeper agent for the Federalist Society or whatever those, you know, weirdos want to say.
0: So let's go over what this testimony, I guess, is, uh, but from this FBI agent for probable cause facts supporting probable cause about what happened at the residence that night. Is it is it right to call it testimony declaration, sworn declaration? After yeah, that? I
1: sworn a sworn declaration under penalty of perjury is testimony. So you're absolutely correct to, to use that phrasing and to give it that level of significance.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. So here, here's <laughs> this debunks pretty much everything that you may have been hearing from <laughs> assholes on the internet. At 2.23 in the morning, San Francisco dispatch got a 911 call from Paul Pelosi located at the residence. Pelosi stated, where's the effect of there's a male in the home and the male is going to wait for my wife. Pelosi further conveyed, he does not know who the male is. That was something that was going around that they were like lovers or something. Uh, Pelosi said he did not know who the mail was and said his name was David. And a lot of people said, how did he know his name? Well, it says here in the affidavit, the mail told him his name was David. Right. And then, uh, 2.31, that's what, eight minutes later, the SFPD yeah. officer Colby Williams responded. And when the door was opened, Pelosi and the assailant were both holding a hammer with one hand and the bad guy had his other hand holding onto to Pelosi's forearm. And I'm not using his name for a host of reasons, but most of all, because I don't want to make him famous. Yeah. Pelosi greeted the officers. The officers asked them what was going on. And then the assailant responded, everything was good.
1: And then the officers asked Pelosi. <laughs> we're, all, we're all good
0: here, right? <laughs> and then officers asked them to drop the hammer. And then the assailant pulled the hammer from Pelosi's hand, swung the hammer, striking Pelosi in the head. Uh, Then officers went in and tackled him, and while they were restraining him, Pelosi appeared to be unconscious on the ground. Officers removed a cell phone, cash, clipper cards, and an unidentified card from the assailant's right shorts pocket. There's another debunk. He wasn't in his underwear. He was wearing clothes. The assailant provided officers his first and last name. Uh, after officers asked if he had ID, he said it might be in his backpack on the back porch and later stated his backpack was near the broken glass. OK, so he did break into the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, the home. It, 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 I am so
1: glad I didn't see any of these conspiracy theories, because every time you emphasize one of these facts, I'm like, I, it, it, the allegation was that he let him in. I, I don't even know. So these
0: are these are shared by Elon Musk, the owner of Um, When officers removed him from Pelosi's residence, police body-worn camera footage showed a glass door that appeared to be laminated glass broken near the door handle. The San Francisco Police Department recovered zip ties in the Pelosi bedroom and in the hallway near the front door. In addition, law enforcement searched the bad guy's backpack and they found, among other things, a roll of tape, white rope, one hammer, one pair of rubber and cloth gloves, and a journal. Now, this is what, when we talk about intent, this is what the assailant told the police in an interview witness. Um, And this is Officer Colby Wilms from the San Francisco Police Department. Witness one, who I saw an individual wearing all black, again, clothed, carrying a large black bag on his back, walking near the Pelosi residence where where witness one was parked. So this is from a witness um, that saw the guy. Uh, witness one was working private security, so this is their security at this um, neighborhood because a lot of the conspiracy theorists just say, where was the, where was the security? Th- this is, he was there watching. Witness one then heard what sounded like a banging on either a door or a car and then heard sirens within a minute or two. And then Paul Pelosi was interviewed by an officer in the ambulance mm. and stated he had never before seen this guy. Uh, he was asleep when he came into his bedroom and stated he wanted to talk to Nancy. When Paul told him Nancy was not there, he said he would sit and wait. He said, she's not going to be home for several days. And he reiterated, I will wait. Pelosi was able to get into the bathroom, which was when he was able to call 911. And Pelosi stated that when the officers arrived, that was when the assailant struck him with the hammer. Uh, In subsequent interview with law enforcement the next day, Paul Pelosi stated that the assailant had a hammer with him during the events described above at the Pelosi residence that was the threat you know that's right, what right. the threatening part was and uh further the hammer did not belong to the Pelosi family uh I can't imagine the Pelosis owning a hammer for some reason but that's just me now here's what here's what the bad guy told right, the fucking right. cops right I mean th- this is this is a
1: situation where the the person we're describing as the assailant has given a recorded confession of what he intended to do. I mean, this is just the level of gaslighting to say, oh, this didn't happen.
0: Yeah. So he told the cops he was going to hold Nancy hostage and talk to her. And if Nancy were to say the truth, quote unquote, he'd let her go. But if she lied, he was going to, quote, break her kneecaps. And he was certain that Nancy would not have told the truth. (laughs) So he was saying he was going to break her kneecaps. During the course of the interview, he articulated he viewed Nancy as the leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party. That debunks anything about this not being political. Uh, he also later explained that by breaking Nancy's kneecaps, she would then have to be wheeled into Congress, which would show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions.
1: It, it, gee, it's almost as if, you know, spending half a decade radicalizing your followers uh, results in them being radical and violent.
0: Yeah and he also explained that he wanted to use Nancy to lure another individual to him doesn't say who that individual is right he also stated that he broke into the house through a glass door which was difficult he said because it required the use of a hammer stated uh, he stated that Pelosi was in bed and appeared surprised by his presence he told Pelosi to wake up he told him that he was looking for Nancy this is what he is telling the cops i told him i was looking for Nancy And Pelosi said she wasn't there. And Pelosi asked how they could resolve the situation and what, what do you want me to do? And he said he wanted to tie him up so that he could go to sleep because he was tired from having to carry that backpack around the Pelosi residence. Around that time, according to the, the bad guy here, he started taking out zip ties from his pockets so that he could restrain Pelosi. Pelosi moved toward another part of the house, but the bad guy stopped him and together they went back into the bedroom. While talking with each other, Pelosi went into the bathroom where he grabbed a phone to call 911. And then the bad guy told the police he stated he felt like Pelosi's actions compelled him to respond. And he remembered thinking there was no way the police were going to forget about the phone call. So he explained that he did not leave after the call to 911 because, much like the American founding fathers with the British, he was fighting against tyranny without the option of surrender.
1: <sighs> Yeah. And, and I, I, the only thing I, I want to add to this is Paul Pelosi is 82 years old. I don't know if that puts you in mind of your grandfather or your father or whatever, but th- this is an elderly, elderly man talking to save his life. If this had happened to, you know, Kevin McCarthy's dad, like I would have the same level of outrage. It, it, the violent...
0: Overthrow of our politics is terrifying. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, it's it's horrifying. Yep. This is horrifying. Yep. Well, then the bad guy said they went downstairs to the front door. He's talking to the cops now, and the, the police arrived, knocked on the door. Pelosi ran over to open it, and at that time Pelosi grabbed on to the assailant's hammer, which was in his hand. At that point in the interview, talking to police he repeated that he did not plan to surrender and that he would go through Pelosi. He also stated he pulled the hammer away from Pelosi and swung the hammer toward Pelosi. He explained that Pelosi's actions resulted in Pelosi taking the punishment instead. Yeah.
1: And and again, to be clear, when this affidavit says Pelosi, it is referring to Paul Pelosi. It refers to Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. as Nancy, following what, what the assailant, had had called her I, it, all i can say is you know if you have uh, you know right wing monsters in your family that m- maybe this is an opportunity to you know make some progress in communicating with them to say like c- c- can can we at least agree that that this is horrible and that you know folks who were spreading conspiracy theories and well i'm just asking questions about why they were both holding a hammer or, you know whatever the you know, that 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 has no place in you know an assault on an 82 year old man and i don't know mm. maybe maybe it helps um but uh it uh, disgusting uh good good to know that uh you know the the evidence was immediately made public, and sad to know that there's a huge chunk of 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 our society that uh, isn't going to believe it, even though it's in black and white.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, and we're all, I'm already getting responses on this thread that I put out about this uh, affidavit. Uh, oh yeah, totally debunked. Right when the feds charge a local crime, really? There are no local crimes charged here. There are only federal crimes yeah. charged.
1: Yeah, it. we explained at the beginning.
0: Yes, it's absolutely. Just menacing and disturbing yeah. and, and fucked up and um these I I'm glad that they're they're applying the right laws here. Yep,
1: absolutely. And
0: again, I would feel
1: this same way if uh, you know I, our, our side isn't being radicalized with the same level of violent rhetoric. And I, it, if we were, we would call it out. But it, it it just absolutely
0: hundred fucking percent. I was pissed when they, when they shot up the Congress game, the baseball yeah, game, of course. And, they, and they hit. I was uh, pissed when, you know, somebody was outside stalking Kavanaugh's house. I wasn't mad that he didn't get to enjoy a nice creme brulee and there were people yelling at him. I don't give a fuck about that. But immediately the Democratic Congress put in some rules to protect Supreme Court justices. Like the liberals did that. Um, Because that's what we do. We don't like people to beat people up. Yep.
1: That's exactly right.
0: The fucking way that it goes. Uh, All right. So. Now that we have that horrifying palate cleanser time. (laughs) Yeah, because this is going to take a pretty harsh left turn uh, as we as we I don't even have a segue from how to talk about this domestic terrorism and assassination attempt on the Speaker of the House. To what Eastman is. doing? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I, mean, I just don't have a segue. I don't. It's like, well, that ends. we're just going to we're just going to compartmentalize the first part of the show. We're now going to talk about something that is literally fucking hilarious. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about the timeline uh, that, that happened? Yeah, here?
1: absolutely. So uh, just to get all our listeners up to speed. Uh, Dr. John Eastman, uh, former law professor uh, and counsel to former President Donald Trump, the legal architect of the January 6th insurrection, right? The first person to develop legal memoranda suggesting that Mike Pence just, you know, there's enough ambiguity in the Electoral Count Act that he can just kind of throw out a whole bunch of states, or at minimum, you know, punt everything uh, for for a couple of months until we figure this whole thing out um so uh absolutely like the the intellectual scumbag of january 6th um also um (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I think I know why this happened, um, decided that he was going to communicate his insurrection emails uh, from his work account. And and by the way, uh, the university that formerly employed uh, Dr. John Eastman was like, hey, hey, you know what, January 6th committee, we have all of his emails and we are mm. super happy to turn them over to you. So uh, Eastman went uh, to a U.S. district court in California and... And sought injunctive relief to prevent uh, the disclosure of his emails. And uh, spoiler alert, that's not going great for him. <laughs> he he hired, and, and this I think is the linchpin upon which all of this turns, right? He hired Charles Burnham, uh, who is a well-known and well-respected D.C. boutique white-collar criminal defense lawyer, who... Um, and, and as his attorney. Really? Because
0: yeah. he seemed kind of dumb. Of course, in he seems
1: super fucking dumb because he's doing a thing that he's not supposed to do. And so, like, He's conflated the standards in civil and criminal cases. He's suggested that like the January 6th committee has a Brady obligation to turn over exculpatory evidence to them. I mean, he's just done dumb shit because this isn't his lane. Now, why would you hire a criminal defense lawyer as your as the plaintiff? seeking an injunctive relief against your employer because you know you committed crimes and you're playing the long game and you want to bring in the guy that you hope will keep you out of jail uh but I gotta tell you it, it, it has not gone well in preventing uh documents from going to the January 6th committee and uh, as we talked about this on last week's opening arguments on October 19th so there have been three separate, uh, tranches of documents reviewed, uh, by the court, uh, by Dr. John Eastman, the, the, the ones that caught all the headlines, uh, were a couple of months ago. And that was Mm -hmm. when, uh, the judge said, uh, ruled that a number of documents were subject, uh, to the crime fraud exception. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the first time in print, Uh, admittedly, in a civil case, uh, a sitting judge uh, said that uh, the the evidence, by preponderance of the evidence, that it was more likely than not that John Eastman and Donald Trump committed crimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and and specifically Uh 1512C2 and 371, both of Title 18, which are conspiracy to defraud the united states and obstructing an official proceeding yeah.
1: oh sorry uh, sorry uh, <laughs> I, didn't realize uh,
0: I, I was like throw it back yeah, to you no, no hey, all hey, right we, i'll we take it
1: sorry <laughs>
0: um yeah if, if i don't say something immediately it's not because i'm thinking oh yeah no <laughs> <laughs> just kidding sometimes it totally is like why did i come into this room what was it again that i was in here no, for?
1: you have a mind like um, a steel trap allison
0: oh geez so, really no i don't know so
1: I don't know. So that was really significant. And and basically what happened is the January 6th committee prioritized different segments. Right. So the first set of documents were those sent about a week before and up through the day of and the day after the January 6th insurrection. And those those got produced. And then they're like, hey, why don't you look back? Yeah, and
0: they reserved the right. They reserved the right to go through the rest at a later date to go through yeah. all of them. That's
1: exactly right. And so that that's what the court's been doing. So then the second tranche, the court went through a whole bunch from the December period, ordered a bunch more produced. And now they went through basically the rest of those documents. And they ordered 33 more documents to be produced. Uh, And this is really, really critical. This was Wednesday, (laughs) October 19th, in which uh, the court required Eastman to produce the documents 33 documents. And the court gave him nine days to produce 33 documents. Now, I have been required to produce 33 documents in an afternoon, right? Like,
0: yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that's
1: the kind of thing where you could say, you know, hey, no later than tomorrow. And he whatever. doesn't
0: even have to search for them; He knows where they are.
1: No, they, that, <laughs> they've got them right there. Right. And so the court is doing that to give Eastman sufficient time to lodge an immediate uh, request with the ninth circuit to uh stay the effect of that ruling and uh, and or file an interlocutory appeal on the merits right now that appeals going nowhere <laughs> uh, but nevertheless you know that was the that's the thought process so october 19th on a wednesday fortunate for me cuz opening arguments records on thursday and usually these things come out too late said hey by next friday uh produce those documents unstated, you know, or tee up the relief. However, um, because, and I swear to fucking God, I am not making this up, uh, because Charles Burnham and Anthony Casso were one of them was like backpacking in the Himalayas or something. Uh, and the other was, you know, really super busy. (laughs) I swear to you, I'm not making either of those up. Um, they, they decided, not to file anything right away and in fact waited until the day before anything was due right that is the thursday the 27th to file a uh a motion for reconsideration right that was <laughs> like um we you think you're wrong about that <laughs> and uh then it's uh, still nothing in the ninth circuit right so um court kind of looked at that motion for reconsideration or to, to stay. And then on that Friday, the day the documents are due, 1148 a.m., right? So uh, just just over two hours to the court deadline. As court said, 2 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Friday, turn them over to the 1-6 committee. Uh, so then they, fi- they finally filed something with the Ninth Circuit, an emergency motion for stay, to a single circuit judge pursuant to an obscure part of the federal rules of appellate procedure its rule 8A2D by the way um and um the ninth circuit judge declined to act in the next like hour or so <laughs> so a half hour before the, this is my favorite part i'm sorry i know i know i'm building up a lot on the narration but <laughs> no it's really funny <laughs> at 1:29 p.m. 31 minutes before the court's imposed deadline. Uh, And here I'm just going to read from what they filed in the Ninth Circuit. Quote, counsel for Dr. Eastman filed in the district court a motion for extension of time to produce the eight contested documents and a notice of appeal to the Ninth Circuit. By the way, still no appeal to the Ninth Circuit filed at that time. (laughs) Just a notice. Just a notice that we're going to file that appeal. Right. Um,
0: yeah. All right. Cool, bro. <laughs> file, fi- fire
1: away. We're not. And, yeah. and basically mm-hmm. the argument was, well, you know, we filed our thing yesterday and we filed a thing like two, almost two, two whole hours ago. Um, and and nobody has stopped in to help us. So, you know, you should just shut this whole thing down as if the Ninth Circuit had stayed uh, the entire uh, order and, you know, give us some time to work this out. And then this is my favorite, favorite, favoritist part because you have to understand the way uh, a, a district court judge's courtroom and and their office, right, it works here. So one twenty nine, this motion for extension of time comes in at one forty eight p.m. <laughs> The district court denied Dr. Eastman's motion for reconsideration or, or to stay. Denied it. Right. Denied <laughs> it. That was uh, the, the the one that was filed the, the day before. But then...
0: Oh, so they weren't responding to the one filed at 129. Yep. They were responding to the day before. I, ex- okay. Except
1: that at 1.50 p.m., so with 10 minutes oh, okay. left on the clock, the district court denied the motion for extension of time. Now, here's the inside baseball that you need to know. <sighs> On CMECF, on the electronic filing system, in order to get these responses docketed, it takes about 10 minutes start to finish to upload the document and click through. And you got to I do this all the time, right? I practice in federal court and to click it through. So in order to get both of those orders docketed within two minutes of each other, the the judge had to have taken both. Both of his clerks and said, all right, you go to that terminal, you go to the other terminal, and I want you to upload (laughs) these things right fucking now, because there is no way that we're not getting our response denying this bullshit motion. On the record before two o'clock, and those clerks ran over. I mean, to do this in in eighteen, in nineteen, and twenty-one minutes respectively. There's no
0: way we're not getting it on the docket yeah.
1: before two yeah. o'clock. Yeah, I yeah. thought that's mm-hmm. what I said, but if not, that's what I meant, right? So might have yeah. been, but
0: I, I I know what you <laughs> yeah. mean. Go run. You take a. You take both B, of you at the same time.
1: Sit down. We're not waiting. We're not doing the seriatum. And and by the way, like that is at that is assuming. Instantaneous transmission of that motion for extension of time from the clerks to the judge. So, what I envision, again, as somebody who was uh, clerked, although not you know for a federal district court judge, that that the one of the clerks got the little beep that said, "Hey, something's been filed." Looked at it, printed it off. Took it into the judge's chambers Said he was like in thirty seconds. Was like, oh hell no! <laughs> like <laughs> this is this is the worst, most bad faith thing I have ever seen in my entire fucking life. Now that's yeah. a little bit of something. This is <laughs> just
0: this is just to, to 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 what it feels like to me. Because here here's here's the thing, and I work. I know we're gonna get to the payoff here in a second. But in in one of those earlier arguments, he said, look, 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 I didn't say what you think I said in these crime fraud emails, and I can prove it with context from other emails, but I'm not going to tell you what that context is or what the other emails are. Uh, I I can just, I'm just, I just promise. And, and then all this back and forth. And then finally, you know, the, they go in, the, the committee goes in, gets their documents out of the the portal the Dropbox, right and and he says no 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 i had something pending uh, it it felt like he was just filing 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 in the, fingers crossed something would be pending when congress tried to download those those emails so that he could say aha you took them while stuff was pending and that's actually what he's kind of arguing in this it, last it, thing it, right
1: it is and it, and it's silly so It's so So dumb, because
0: otherwise anyone could just keep filing and filing and filing and filing and never have to produce what they've been ordered to produce. Right. And
1: one of the things that, you know, we emphasize on this show and on our respective shows is filing an appeal, filing a motion, doing a thing does not automatically stay the effect of a judgment. You have to persuade either the same court or a higher court to grant some kind of injunctive relief. Otherwise you do the thing. And then, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if there was a mistake, we like, we fix it later on. Right. Um, and, and here, like, I, I think there probably is some basis, right? Like that's why I believe, uh, the, the judge, uh, gave, Eastman nine days to comply, right? Because
0: yeah, and he didn't. He could have come up with his excuse and his, his, his <laughs> argument as to why he might win on the merits uh, for a stay, right? If I'm going to say, I'm, I need injunctive relief, here's those emails that I say that, that show that you're taking this out of context. Here they are. Here are copies of them. Here's the argument as to how you're taking it out of context, that this is me telling him that he shouldn't sign inaccurate numbers. Here it all is. And I argue that I can win on the merits and I will be irreparably harmed without a stay. You need to block this pending appeal. Yep. He didn't do any of fucking that <laughs> at
1: all. And it led to what is the most unintentionally hilarious. So this is uh, the, the that motion to stay pending appeal. And footnote one, one says... We acknowledge that this motion was not filed for a week after the district court's order, but lead counsel for plaintiff appellant had a number of substantive hearings during that time frame and co-counsel, that's Burnham, I think, was traveling abroad without ready access to email and did not return to the United States until October 27. Um, I got to tell you, if you are ever tempted to put that in a court filing, don't. Okay like the the court does not want to hear like oh i was backpacking in the himalayas so you know fuck you and fuck your deadlines no, they, they, like I, if I can do this show from Italy and from a cruise ship, like the court expects you to be able to handle your filings in a timely manner. And the the fact that lead counsel is like, well, you know, I got I got a lot of other cases here. And it's like you got a lot of cases more important than the effort to overthrow democracy. Not sure that's the argument you think it is, bro. Um, mm-mm, un- mm-mm. Unbelievable. I mean, just hysterical uh, reading that. So back to the timeline. Um that That's at 150. The court shuts all this shit down. So 153 uh, counsel for Dr. Eastman gives the January 6th committee the 25 of the 33 documents that they don't really care about. Right. Like these are documents that are uh, duplicative of other produced. They're, they're not the real smoking gun documents. But as we talked about on OA, there are eight more documents that were. Uh, the subject of the prior order that were invalidated because of the crime fraud exception, as in planning and executing the plot to uh, disregard electors, right. That were ordered produced uh, by the court that they really, really don't want to produce. And (laughs) so they wait until the end. And then I I, I love that, that, that this false on its face sentence is, uh, I'm going to read this word for word from Eastman's supplemental filing to the Ninth Circuit. "Quote: In order to comply fully with the district court's production order, counsel for Dr. Eastman provided to the Select Committee at 2:04 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time a link to a Dropbox folder containing the remaining eight documents that were the subject of the motion to stay that was at the time and is still pending before the Ninth Circuit." End of quote. Now, um, that does not fully comply with the district court's production order. I realize only by four minutes. Um, but it's still lying to the Ninth Circuit, right? You could say in order to comply substantively and given the last minute, you know, we we provided four minutes late, which we think, you know, uh, uh, you know, causes no substantive. Arm. And you'd be right. Like, I would not want to litigate, you know, Uh, that you've harmed me because I got something four minutes late. However, (laughs) in transmitting it, counsel for Dr. Eastman requested that the documents not be accessed until the Ninth Circuit had had a chance to rule on the motion for stay pending appeal. Um, (laughs) And Doug Letter, general counsel for the January 6th committee uh, wrote back. uh, I would, I would have just loved to have been able uh, to have have written this email. He says, Mr. Burnham, I'm hereby formally alerting you that when you provided the relevant documents from Professor Eastman earlier this evening, in this case, the select committee downloaded and examined all of those documents. The select committee did so because the district court had ordered that these documents be disclosed by 5 p.m. Eastern time today, and the district court had summarily denied your request for reconsideration or a stay, which had not been filed by you until the very eve of the disclosure deadline. There was thus no court order prohibiting the select committee from examining the documents that the district court ordered your client to produce. Any controversy regarding these particular documents is thus now moot. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, we read them, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it.
0: Yeah. Oops, we didn't wrongfully read them.
1: Yeah. Abso- absolutely not. Um, the, the, the the again. What Eastman essentially wanted was, well, let's pretend that the Ninth Circuit had granted my motion to stay. Well, you know, if the Ninth Circuit had granted your motion to stay, uh, then uh, there would be no problem. So uh, and, and, and let me point out that um, Eastman's motion to stay did not show up on the document. We can see the timestamp until 6.08 p.m. Eastern Time. In other words, as of 5 p.m., there was not even a motion for stay pending in the Ninth Circuit that was visible to the the January 6th committee. So even under the the most favorable conditions. Uh, the January 6th committee and its council are 100% in the clear. They had every right to do. Um, now you're left with kind of a weird situation, right? Because you, you have this pending mission. Oh, by, by the way, uh, fully briefed by Eastman. Uh, the DOJ response is due uh, Tuesday, right? That would be yesterday as you're hearing this. Uh, and any reply due Wednesday. So I, I, you got a fair idea. Of of how the Ninth Circuit probably thinks this is gonna go, like, uh, yeah, why don't we get one day of briefing from uh, from each of the parties? Um,
0: and this isn't the actual appeal, uh, right? Yeah, no,
1: th- th- this is uh, this is on the request for injunctive relief, right? the The underlying appeal itself is never going to get decided, right? It's just a question of right. do they. You can't stay the district court's order. So now he wants to claw it back, right? (laughs) So uh, they write in their supplemental briefing, Dr. Eastman amends his pending motion to stay to request the destruction or return of the disputed documents and a protective order barring their use by the select committee until the matter is resolved on appeal. Um, It's an interesting gambit because the Friday pleading says, it's irreparable harm to let them see the documents, right? Quote, once privileged communications are disclosed, that disclosure is permanent, end of quote. <laughs> yeah, so
0: clawing them back is not So clawing nothing. them
1: back by your own argument is not relief. Now, I, I want to be as, uh, you know, as strong, <laughs> like as steel-botting Fair. the other side as possible, right? Um, that There are inadvertent production cases, right, in which... Uh, you might say, yeah, we're, we're going to order that those documents be destroyed uh, and or returned to the party that inadvertently produced them. And you can't use them in the case and pretend you've never seen them. This is not being produced in litigation right? This is going to a congressional investigatory committee and yeah, you, you, uh, you can't gouge out their eyes, right? Like you, I, I don't know. I don't know what you can do. You know,
0: it's like the mystery science theater 3000 <laughs> until then, neither of us saw anything. Okay. I'll go, I'll go poke Webb's eyes. At yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Exactly. Right. So I, you know, the, the, I've never, I've never seen a situation where you would claw back from the public, you know, from, from first on a congressional investigatory committee that then has the right to make these documents public and in fact has, has promised to do so. So, um, yeah, this is, uh, well, we've
0: seen them in the, we've seen them in the judges. Qu-
1: yep. <laughs> yes. The October 19th order you, to what you are referring is the October 19th order quotes from one of these eight documents, um,
0: Yeah, it shows the email. Yeah, which
1: we titled, you know, Smocking Gun episode of Opening Arguments. Uh, (laughs) Because, and this is the significance, at least one of these eight documents purports to show that Donald Trump knew that the numbers in Georgia were bullshit. And he signed the affidavit anyway. And if that's the case... That removes the last linchpin that you would need for establishing an 18 U.S.C. 2071 violate. Right. Like it would show that he willfully uh, engaged in a conspiracy to deprive the United States government of uh, its Effort to certify the electors, and he knew he was full of shit. He knew the arguments were wrong at the time. And, 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 you know, and we've been flagging that, that like that was going to be the Trump defense all along. And I thought that. The January 6th committee did a, did a, as good a job as you can with the inferences, right? they like, here are 40 people with law degrees telling Donald Trump that this is stupid. And here's Rudy Giuliani, who, as the one committee pointed out on multiple occasions, is drunk and flatulent. And, uh, you know, you decided you're going to go with Giuliani? Um, okay, you know. and uh, but, but, you know, you could see... That's a crack through which a particularly politically, say, say, sympathetic jury might hang some reasonable doubt, right? Well, we think Trump really did think he won by 80 billion votes or whatever. So, you know, he wasn't willfully depriving the United States of the right to seat electors. He was just, you know, it just happened to do that in the course of him trying to vindicate his rights by whatever means possible. Bad argument but but not foreclosed on by the documents these documents at least one at least the one quoted in that in the courts october 19th order appear to slam that window shut and uh boy if that's the case i, I just can't wait for our next <laughs> january 6th committee hearing
0: yeah if we have uh, any more hearings uh, i would love to see another surprise hearing i think
1: we'll have one in december even if uh and, and maybe especially if uh, the the democrats lose the house um
0: I would like a surprise one right before the election. Oh,
1: well.
0: <laughs> That's just, you know, I'm just putting it out there into the universe, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Um,
1: no, no disagreement there.
0: Yeah. So this is clearly going nowhere. And I mean, we have so many of these. We've got, we had Kelly Ward trying to stop her phone records from going over. We have, I mean, there's Lindsey Graham trying to stop his testimony in Georgia. Meadows trying to stop his testimony in Georgia. Everybody is losing these. No one has won. Yep. It just takes a while to get all the way up to the court. And, um, you know, like we said last week, don't freak out about Clarence Thomas putting in a temporary stay, blocking Lindsey Graham's testimony, because he's just giving him a chance to appeal uh, to, to the Supreme Court, as is his right, right? And to, to kind of drive that point home in the Kelly Ward and Michael Ward, you know, Arizona GOP case. Mm-hmm turning over records, T-Mobile records to the January 6th committee, Justice Kagan uh, stayed that yeah. uh, production until it could be appealed to the Supreme Court. A- so a- it's exact not. Exact
1: same administrative stay for the exactly the same reasons, but just this time, yes. you know, from somebody that maybe her audience trusts a little more, but maybe, maybe you trusted us now. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, but now that doesn't mean I don't think Justice Thomas should be recused from this entire fucking thing. Of course. Uh, but that's, absolutely. That's. Yes. It shouldn't have been him that issued the administrative stay. I'll give you that. It should have been somebody else. Um, But the stay, I think, was going to be administered regardless. Uh,
1: Let's let's be 100% honest. I do not know what happens on administrative docket, right? The the so-called
0: shadow docket. If you have to recuse. If you
1: recuse yourself for the circuit over which you sit, do you just get to name the single Supreme Court justice to whom it goes? because how much better would you have felt if you know Clarence Thomas said well I'm recusing myself here and I name Amy Coney Barrett to rule in my stead uh, and then Amy Coney Barrett had entered the state like you you'd be just as skeptical so you know when I said yeah. this is this is routine this is administrative it is for the same reasons that I was confident that Clarence Thomas was not going rogue and going to overrule the 11th circuit in the Narra Lago cases, right? Like it it he had he had the same opportunity except that he knew if he had done so, if he had entered in a stay of the 11th circuit's order in in the Narra Lago case and said, "No, we're going to, you know, absolutely make a uh, Uh, top secret national security documents (laughs) produced, uh, you know, to the special master and withheld from the FBI, like that would have just gone to the full Supreme Court a day later and he would have been slapped down eight to one and he didn't want that to happen. And so it didn't happen. And and I, I know it's tough to have any faith in any of our institutions right now, I, I get that. But, um, uh, you know, it, we should and we we should wear where it's deserved. We should not when it's not. And, you know, we, we try and, and stay on top of that. But um, uh, I, I think if this nation is ever going to heal, it is by rebuilding those institutions, not by giving up and saying everything is for grabs. But, you know, that's me.
0: Yeah, I agree. I concur. Thank you, sir. Well put, and thank you all for listening. Uh, we're gonna keep you patrons posted as to when our first little bonus discussion comes out. Shouldn't be too long. Um, it's gonna be a pre-election, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. We're gonna talk about that a little bit, and uh, maybe you know <laughs> what what anything else that happens to drop, which it's seeming like so much news is coming. I thought it would be nice and quiet ahead of the elections. It's not. So um, yeah, we, we'll, keep you, we'll keep you posted. But thank you to all of our patrons. And thanks to everyone else who's listened to the show. We love you as well. Uh, and uh, I don't have any final thoughts if you don't, Andrew.
1: I I think we've covered the gamut uh, emotionally and procedurally at the end of the day you know, bad guys are getting what's coming to them and, uh, and I'm glad we could end with uh, being able to to poke fun at just and, and by the way, like there is no doubt in my mind that John Eastman is downloading and listening to this podcast right? He has responded to people with like, you know, who are eggs on Twitter, right? This is some Somebody who has news alerts set up for his own name. So, uh, you want to sue us? Uh, come, come right ahead because uh, I would—I'm going to win that anti-slap motion, uh, and uh, and your losing streak will continue. You horrible little monster!
0: Excellent. I think we should call the episode. John Eastman should listen to this. podcast. <laughs> there we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll just put it right in his fucking face. You're welcome, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, I've been Allison Gill. <laughs> I'm
1: Andrew Torres.
0: And this has been Clean Up on Aisle 45. We'll see you next week.